Okay, good morning, everyone. We're, we're ready to roll. Uh, so welcome to Hudson Institute. Welcome to all of you present in the room and to the uh, scores of people watching this live online. And uh, I, I remind you that all of these events are recorded. So if you want to watch this again to make sure you didn't miss anything tomorrow or the day after or whenever or refer people to it, we consider these to be uh, documents, if you will. Uh, so uh, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, Marius Lori Navisius for the time he spent with us and for producing this wonderful paper, which is extremely timely. I should mention that Nate Sibley uh, who's the program manager of the Kleptocracy Initiative, and David Tell, uh, who heads up public affairs here at Hudson, played a role in uh, editing this paper and in working on it with Marius. So they need to be thanked. Um, and uh, otherwise, the, the Kleptocracy Initiative, which is the program I run here and uh, who, uh, who is sponsoring this event. I hope you'll take a look at our general activities. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but apart from the Hudson website, we also have a publication website that is at kleptocracyinitiative.org, and uh, you'll find all of our publications, past events, latest wisdom on that. So I hope you take a look at that. Um, quite relevant, one might say, to today's uh, topic is our focus right now, which is really on the containment of kleptocracy and that we not let corrosive practices and norms be exported into our society. Now, interestingly, there is a lot of activity on the Hill in this regard. And before I say a few words about Marius's paper, I'd like to talk very briefly about a bill that has just come out with bipartisan support sponsored by Representative Swatsy out of Long Island, and it's called the Fight Russian Corruption Act. So uh, the cynics on these sorts of matters, I have less and less respect for, given the action on the Hill and then these uh, new sanctions that are being attached to the uh, Iran sanction bill are kind of interesting. That just came out. We haven't had time to study that yet. But uh, this bill I'm referring to, which is H.R. 2820, Working Title Fight Russian Corruption Act, in the preamble, we find things that really an introduction to our subject today, such as the Russian Federation uses corruption as a strategic tool to erode democratic governance from within and discredit the liberal democratic system, thereby strengthening Russia's fear of influence. Russia's ultimate goal is to dissolve the transatlantic union by capitalizing on and exacerbating existing tensions within European countries. Um, a little further, only through strengthening Western governance and institutions will the United States and its partners thwart Russian tactics of corruption and exploitation and prevent Russia's virus-like corruption from eroding democracy in the United States, etc. I uh, encourage you all to take a look at this. Easy, easy to find online now. Um, and the the proposal of the bill is to establish an office of anti-corruption 
relating to illicit Russian financial activities in Europe. Interestingly, it targets Europe. It's not talking or addressing at all domestic concerns in this regard. So I, th I thought that was uh, kind of interesting to, to bring up in terms of what's really uh, action happening now in the um, general subject area of Maris's paper, which we're going to discuss today. Of course, we're going to discuss the paper, and then the distinguished panelists uh, will talk about not only the paper, but their own thoughts uh, on the subject. So just a bit of a, of a teaser on what's in the paper. First of all, the overall context in which Marius presents the material is that the Kremlin doesn't distinguish between war and peace. We do, they don't. Um, and then rather uh, than touching on Maris's language, um, he quotes some people we all know, uh, of at least most of us, Edward Lucas, points to the Western drive to make money and do business with Russia at the same time that we've turned a blind eye to the core problems posed by Russia, which have laid the foundations for the weaponization of kleptocracy, a concept this paper will explain. Um, the buying of elites in neighboring countries with money that was then stolen likely together. This is the essence of the Kremlin scheme to weaponize kleptocracy. And this is a very, it's, it's amusing, this, this notion of with money that was stolen likely together. This is the way to export kleptocracy on a budget. You don't spend anything. You find people in another country that you can work with to steal the money from that other country and then uh, and spin that off into other places and all of that. So that's kleptocracy export on the cheap, a very uh, clever thing to do. And uh, Marius talks about that extensively. Um, and it it's, would be amusing if it weren't so sinister in terms of what it's doing to the world. Uh, another important issue is the Kremlin's close cooperation with certain oligarchs that the West tends to see as a source of actual or potential opposition to Putin's regime. But we're wrong about that. Uh, another point, the Kremlin has been attempting to institutionalize kleptocracy in the West, much in the same way it is done inside Russia by infiltrating major institutions. The institutionalization of kleptocracy by means of the capture of various Western institutions, sectors of public life, and if possible, entire states. And lastly, I invite you to the conclusions where Marius says the findings of this paper suggests that Russia's hybrid warfare efforts in the West are not a wholly new phenomenon, but rather a continuation of the Kremlin's total war against the West. And one of the things the paper does is to give the history of that. 
So uh, those are some of the, the main points he makes and that uh, will be elaborated on here. I'd like to um, identify the panelists here. Uh, Hannah Thoburn to my right, my, then we have Marius, then Michael Weiss, and Jeffrey Gedman on the end. The, their bios are uh, on the back of this. Uh, they're all friends. We have a very friendly panel here, and I'm afraid we have very little diversity, diversity because we don't have any pro-kleptocrats. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all three of the panelists uh, have written extensively about this uh, topic. All three of the panelists know Marius quite well. So this is, uh, from now on, a sort of uh, friendly fireside chat, one might say. And uh, we will uh, bring all of you into the conversation, uh, leaving a solid uh, half hour at least for questions and answers and responses and uh, a, uh, an open, uh, open the conversation to you all. Um, so first, first of all, uh, the panelists will say a, f a few words about Marius's paper, perhaps, but also their own views on the subject. And then we'll let Marius respond a little bit, and then we'll go on to continue our conversation and bring you in a bit, a bit later. So uh, why don't we start with uh, Hannah? Sure. Thanks uh, very much, Charles. And uh, my congratulations to Marius for producing a really uh, excellent paper I should also say that it's been wonderful working with you uh, over, over the past year or so, and I know you're going back to, to Lithuania sh quite shortly, so we'll be very sorry to see you go. Um, but I'm, I'm very glad and honored to be on this panel to talk about what I think is a very uh, important subject, and I think you lay out some, some extremely important points here. And the, the, you know, the thing that really jumped out to me, and there's sort of two big things that jumped out, is number one, that this isn't new. The idea of uh, the weaponization of kleptocracy, weaponization of business and of money, uh, we're only talking about one small element of, of many things that a government can include in their uh, toolbox of weapons against another state. But this isn't new. We're, we're sort of treating this as though it's some sort of brand new idea that suddenly appeared on the scene. But the reality is that this has been going on for quite a long time. Um, it's, it's really a manifestation of a, a reasonably old tool, but just by newer means. And we're only now really waking up to the, the actual means and realizing that this is something that does occur. We're, we're only now begun, sort of beginning to understand the means through which this is actually executed. And I think the other thing that really jumped out to me, and I think it's an important point, uh, particularly for Westerners to understand, is that when it comes to countries where business is the state and the state is business, there is really no such thing as an ordinary business deal. Business is not simply business in the way that we think of it. It's inextricably intertwined with the operations of a kleptocratic state like Russia, like China. And there is no way really to separate um, a, a real business transaction from a from, from connecting yourselves to 
the activities uh, of a foreign government. And I think this is where the third thing I want to say very quickly is that I think it's important to understand how all of this works so we in the West can understand and comprehend how this works and, and the manner that we need to go about adjusting our systems to make sure that countries that are attempting to export their kleptocratic systems can't use our systems, can't use the strength of our rule of law, can't use the strength uh, of our court systems and use our businesses and our lawyers uh, to launder their money to export their corruption. We need to develop a kind of societal resilience against what to us may just seem like an ordinary business deal, but in reality has so much more uh, behind it. And I think this is sort of the big lesson that I took away from it is we really need to do a lot of introspection on our own systems and, and look at the way that this affects Western countries and, and do what we can to try and build our resilience against these tactics coming from the outside. Jeff, do you want to? Charles, thank you. Um, I'll echo what Hannah said, uh, Mario's terrific paper, right? and, and if you haven't read it, I commend it to you. It's very rich in detail, very well documented with, with lots of very helpful insights and nuggets. So glad to have read it and glad to be here with you. Um, I'd make three uh, very brief points. The first is, uh, Marius, in your paper, you allude early on to this never-ending debate in Western capitals in Washington, D.C., about whether Vladimir Putin is a strategist or whether he's a tactician. You know, it's a parlor game. How many dinners can we go to? No, 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 he's not a strategist. He's just an opportunist. And then the wheel spins and the next person takes their turn. Uh, you frame the thing very nicely, and it's important to frame it. And you do that in the paper. Uh, I think that now that we have more than a decade and a half of evidence through word and deed from the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin, we do know without a doubt that he is a man with a vision. Remember, vision first, then strategy, then tactics. He is a man with a vision. And he has a vision of a Europe divided. He has a vision of an EU weakened. He has a vision of a NATO emasculated. He has a vision of democracy demoralized, and he has a vision of a Russia built up by cutting America down. I think there's abundant evidence for that after a decade and a half or so. So you can talk about how much strategy, how much tactics, how much opportunism, but he is an individual who has a vision, and your paper is framed in that context. I think that's important, because that's why we care about this. It's not a think tank discussion with all these gadgets and all these modules. He is out to advance something that is inimical to American and Western interests and values. That's point one. Point two, he is a man with some sort of a strategy, and as Hannah pointed out, and as uh, well-documented in Marius's paper, it's not new. It's multifaceted. It's not one thing. It's a number of things, and it's age-old devices and techniques and elements, not only over the last 25 years, but borrowed often and updated from the Cold War. So it's not new. 
we have abundant historical evidence of the kinds of things that are pursued from the Kremlin, and it's multifaceted. And it's funny how we, in policy groups, government, and media, we kind of go like a pack a little bit, if I may say. It took us a while, but thanks to Michael, among others, Peter Pomerantz, who's not here today, we got onto the fact that propaganda and disinformation is a problem. And now we're kind of all there, okay? And it took us a while until it hit us between the eyes, but then we realized, good heavens, technology and cyber warfare, it's a problem. And we're kind of more or less all there now. But Marius's paper has unpacked and introduced something else, the weaponization of kleptocracy. We've known that he, Vladimir Putin, presides over a kleptocratic regime where corruption is uh, kind of a stock in trade of life and living. But now, through the important work, actually, of you, Charles, and the Kleptocracy Initiative, and this paper that you've commissioned and Mars has written, we think more deliberatively about precisely how this is an instrument also of policy. Uh, you mentioned it, Charles, at the top, but I was also taken by that quote by Sergei Karakarov that uh, you use in the paper, Marius. I mean, good heavens, direct, candid. You know, we, we endeavor to buy elites in neighboring countries with the money we've stolen together. Well, you know, if we can't take him at his word, then we deserve the wounds that we get. The last point I want to make is... Um, our complicity, which, which uh, is important to you, Charles, and the work of the Kleptocracy Initiative. And it also comes up in Morris's paper in different ways. Um, it, it is shocking, and I think we're at the beginning of a very long and difficult and painful policy discussion of our part in this, because they don't win without our help in a variety of ways, financially and institutionally and in other ways. But I, I want to end by saying, and, and Morris, you reminded me of this in, in painful ways, we're also complicit by our ignorance and by our naivete. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, we keep saying in Washington, um, no one wants a witch hunt on any of this stuff, right? Well, that's true. But sometimes they're witches, you know? <laughs> it's part of the problem. <laughs> and, and you allude, Marius, often to KGB history, but your paper reminded me of another history in parallel, and that's the history of the East German Stasi, where actually we know more because the country ended and the archives opened. So it's not piecing together a puzzle. We have all the pieces, and we've been reviewing them for years. And, you know, it was the fact that through a variety of means, including financial instruments, East Germany sought to destabilize demoralize and discredit Western Germany. And I'll just end with this. You know, in 1967, a big event in West Berlin in a peace movement that was a catalyst for the peace movement, the anti-American elements of the peace movement, and radical violence in West Germany. The catalyst was the murder of a young peaceful protester by a West German policeman who, years later in 2009, by researchers in the Stasi archives in Berlin, was discovered to be a Stasi agent. Well, two years later, it was discovered 
in those same Stasi archives in 2011 that a leader of the Bader-Meinhof-Gang has ties to the Stasi at a minimum as an informer, but probably was directed. And it was the, the conviction of Konrad Adenauer in the 1950s in West Germany that some of the outbreaks of anti-Semitic violence and vandalism were run by communist agents. But we know from history, Adenauer didn't want to say anything publicly because he didn't want to seem paranoid. Well, guess what? As we learned from the archives in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and right through the fall of the Berlin Wall. That's exactly what East German communist agents did to demoralize, discredit, and show West Germany as an unreliable ally. So history is not new. It's multifaceted. And sometimes our ignorance and naivete makes us awfully complicit in a very dangerous way. I'll stop with that. Uh, well, let me be then the last um, to say how much I enjoyed reading this paper and how significant I thought it was. And, and in reading it, it, it sort of allowed me to take a step back from the sort of granular work that I've been doing with respect to Russian kleptocracy and realize the reason that this is, is such an important topic, and I would argue actually the Rosetta Stone for understanding Putinism, is it's the one consistency throughout the regime. Um, and I, I just sitting here wrote down several aspects of it that I think make it powerful and also uh, allow any constituency in the world to be concerned with it, whatever your personal uh, pet peeve is, whether it be human rights, you know, the very notion of, of rampant state theft or virtual mafia state uh, operations, um, or indeed uh, reform and civil society within Russia. Number one, as we've seen in only the last week, this resonates very, very deeply on the Russian street uh, in the form of protest movements. People turn out on the streets, not necessarily because they see Putin as an awful, murderous, torturous dictator, but because he is overseeing the party of crooks and thieves, and that, that rampant state theft fundamentally affects the Russian people. Number two, it invariably, corruption invariably leads to what we call gross human rights abuses or violations, chiefly in the form of corpses. Right, uh, BuzzFeed broke a story a few days ago showing that Alexander Perpolichny, who worked for the Kluyev Group, which if you know the Magnitsky Affair, as I've been writing about for five years, he was a, a money launderer for a Russian state-backed and indeed state-composed mafia organization who turned informant, and he wound up dead in November of 2012 on the streets of Surrey in England, where he was out for a jog, and it looks like not only was he killed, by the Russian security services, but he was killed at the personal behest of Vladimir Putin. And this, this really gets to the heart of the issue. Why is kleptocracy so important to the Russian government? It's not about billionaire oligarchs you know, looking to expropriate the, or, or, or undermine the competition. That's one manifestation of it. But fundamentally, you're looking at theft, corruption, organized crime as a lever or a tool of the Russian government itself. The FSB, the GRU, outsourcing, in effect, through under this guise of plausible deniability, work that they cannot do themselves. And the generation of a black ledger, or a what, what is also known as a parallel budget for the Russian government to use, whether it be for the purposes of sowing disinformation and propaganda in Western democratic societies, whether it be for the purpose of propping up rogue 
uh, or pariah regimes that are aligned with the Kremlin. This is really, to me, uh, the fundamental sort of sinister aspect of, of the Putin regime. And you're quite right in your paper to, to say that, look, there's nothing new under the sun here. This does go back to the KGB period. The, the, the difference now is, whereas it used to be wedded to one very specific and intelligible ideology of Marxism-Leninism, and, and you know, the, the, the ultimate goal unto the, the very days of the collapse of the Soviet Union was the, the sort of worldwide revolution and the spread of, uh, of proletarian dictatorship. Today, there is no hard and fast ideology. And in a way, one could argue that makes us staring down the barrel of a, of a gun or facing a threat that's more difficult to contain and deter than it was in the past. When you ask somebody on the street of any city, what is Putinism? What does Russia today stand for? You're going to get different answers. You're going to get orthodoxy. You're going to get institutionalized homophobia or real sort of blood and soil nationalism. You're going to get robbing the people blind, or you're going to get uh, a bulwark of anti-imperialism. It is everything. It's, it's what, what I would call liquid ideology. But when it comes to the money, this is the one area, just that, that, that hardcore you know, in, empiricism of following the, the, the paper trail and going after dollars and cents in bank accounts. That is where um, sort of this tricksiness and this postmodern conceit of, well, we're anything that people uh, assume. We, you, know, you project your own version of reality onto what the Russian government is, it all comes to an end. And, as, and we've seen this in, in the most recent history of the Russian interference in the U.S. election. I mean, if you take reporting uh, on this issue seriously, uh, the Panama Papers essentially convinced Putin that uh, this was a, an American-run conspiracy to expose not only his personal illicit wealth, but the, the personal illicit wealth of all of his friends and cronies, including uh, Sergei Roldugin, one of his close friends, uh, going back to his St. Petersburg days, and he had to do something about it, i.e., hack into de the Democratic National Committee and the DCCC, and essentially try to steer the election in a way that was deemed more favorable to Russia. So, in a sense, look, um, and, and this is perhaps where I am a little bit cynical. You know, I, I've written about human rights, I've written about civil society, I've written about the plight of the opposition within, the, within Russia itself. I've written about Ukraine, I've written about the war in Syria. But at the end of the day, uh, corruption and kleptocracy is the, the one thing I find that actually really gets under the skin of the bad guys, right? Um, without the ability to launder their finances in the West, and this touches upon Jeff's point about complicity, without the ability to send their children to elite private schools in England, without the ability to go shopping at Harrods or on Madison Avenue, there's a sense of purposelessness. Why are we doing this? What, you know, what, what do we stand for? Why, why do we even serve at the pleasure of this dictatorship? To take that away, I find, is uh, it, it's the best way to sort of hit back. So indeed, I mean, I, I think that this, is, this, is, this really is the nub of the issue. Um, it, it is fundamentally about money. And you know, the idea that, that corruption is not just a domestic issue, but that it's, it's exported, and that it always bleeds its way in, so to speak, to the West and eventually affects us here at home. I mean, I'm working on a story right now that is tied to Russia, a, a, a major uh, case of Russian corruption uh, as it uh, applies to the Syrian chemical weapons program, of all things. Um, just something I would never have thought of to look for in a million years, but there it is. Uh, and again, it comes back to this idea of, of the FSB and the GRU outsourcing their activities 
to rogue actors and, and dirty businessmen with offshore companies registered in you know, very tax haven friendly jurisdictions. Well, thank you. Well, perhaps we should let Marius say something about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, Charles. <clears throat> thank you all for coming. And uh, especially thank you for being interested in the problem, which I believe is very important and still underestimated here in the West. Um, but taking this opportunity, I would like to thank, uh, to, thank uh, <coughs> to express my deep gratitude to two institutions. First of all, for <coughs> Baltic American Freedom Foundation. Uh, they are the sponsors of my scholarship. And without their support, uh, this report wouldn't uh, appear, wouldn't, would not have appeared. Uh, and uh, the other is Hudson Institute. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Ken, Craig, and all the others for taking me on board. And I spent uh, a wonderful year here with all of you. And it was very good year for my prof professional career, but I enjoyed every minute as well. So on the topic, uh, first of all, I would like to make a very important distinction between Russia and the regime we're talking about. I'm from Lithuania, and I still remember how Russians uh, fought with us. They stood with us uh, near our parliament when Russia, uh, Soviet tanks <clears throat> run uh, on, our, on our people. So for me, it's always uh, a really important distinction between uh, the current criminal uh, kleptocratic regime and Russia. I really know that Russia can be different, and it should be different. Uh, the second thing I would like to talk about is the myth that this regime, yes, it's kleptocratic, yes, it's uh, criminal, but there is a myth, especially in the West, that this regime and Putin himself is interested just in uh, enriching himself of themselves and nothing else. To my mind, it's a wrong idea, which misleads us and makes a lot of problems for us. This regime, uh, yes, it's not the Soviet ideology, but I'm afraid I can't agree with you very much. Uh, it has an ideology which is anti-Western, uh, anti-liberal, and first of all, anti-American. Uh, this regime has the only one enemy, it's United States. When we think and talk about being uh, on the front line in the Baltic states, uh, Ukraine and other countries near Russia, I should say that you here are on the front line as well. And kleptocracy is one of the things you are on the front line. Um, the next thing I would like to talk about is that this regime is at war with us. 
And when somebody is at war with us, we are unfortunately at war with them. Uh, I love this uh, quotation from Trotsky that you can be, you can not be interested in war, but the war is interested in you. So it's the case about current regime. Uh, and when we are at war, and we should realize that, uh, we should look back, and we should look back to the Cold War. I'm fully aware that uh, the world. Uh, the world has changed, and uh, I don't think that we can have something similar to uh, the Cold War, and uh, I don't want to have one. Uh, but the thing is that we deny uh, the existence of the similarities to the uh, Cold War. We mislead ourselves as well. Uh, because um, I've been working on KGB and all these things for 25, 26 years already. So I should say that from my experience, uh, there is very little new. Only some technologies, some new tools, and that's it. The concept is absolutely the same. Uh, they do the same things they did during uh, the Cold War, and even some people who uh, know it for sure from, from Russia, they say that even uh, the textbooks of uh, nowadays FSB, or FSB Academy, are absolutely the same. Not the similar, but the same. Just the parts with uh, Communist Party were omitted, and that's it. So that's why we should look at the Cold War. We should look at the history. We should learn from the history. And uh, this paper, uh, I believe, uh, shows a small part of it because uh, there is a bigger part of it uh, inside, and, 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 and we, sh we really should uh, take it in, uh, into account. Uh, one more thing I would like to underline is uh, the idea that um, there is no such thing as a former KGB or FSB agent. Don't take it from me, take it from Putin himself, who is always talking about that. But it's even better to take it from former KGB agent uh, Schwetz, uh, who is quoted in the paper. And he's considered to be a reliable source. Uh, he was uh, one of the witnesses during Litvinenko case in, in, in London. So uh, he explains um, very well how it works. In Russia, that's the difference from our Western system, because uh, when somebody retires from any intelligence agency here in the West, he just retires. But it's not the case in uh, Russia. In, in, uh, in Russia, he's, uh, he or she is enlisted in so-called reserve. And that means that he, he keeps all the relations with his uh, organization. And he can be used at any time for the aims and purposes of uh, the regime and this organization. 
When I'm talking about that, um, I have in mind um, some recent uh, story about uh, somebody offered uh, back channel communications to the bank here in US, uh, the guy who is the leader of the bank here in US with the uh, FSB background. I'm not going to point any fingers at any individuals. I'm talking about the system. And this uh, feature we should take in mind. He is from FSB. And uh, to say more, uh, this is the bank, uh, and we know now for sure, uh, because uh, one guy from the bank was arrested by uh, FBI uh, as a Russian spy. So why such a bank is offered as a back-channel communication for U.S. government? We should ask these questions. And it's not about pointing uh, fingers to any individuals. And this is the last thing I would like to talk about, uh, because when I'm looking at this, uh, at this recent scandal and, and even at uh, the attempts uh, to go to the bottom of it, uh, one thing which I really don't like is that it becomes a partisan uh, investigation or partisan uh, Evil, even partisan political uh, issue. Uh, when looking from the Russian side, I'm absolutely sure that Russians do no distinguish, uh, d d distinction between uh, any party in the West and here in the US. They're doing the same things with the uh, one party and the others. So it's not about one individual, it's not about one party, it's about the system, how it works from Russian side. And the last one is uh, that it's not just some coincidences. It, it is a system how this regime works, how it projects its influence over the West, and how they want to undermine and as they say themselves, to destroy the West. So we should have in mind all of this and uh, do our own homework. Well, thank you, Marius. Uh, well, this leads us to the uh, obvious question of how we can better defend ourselves. And um, as a, a program in a think tank, a big part of our job is to come up with policy ideas. Um, huge interest on the Hill now in these questions. So can you help us out a little bit uh, on that side? Um, and uh, and I, I hope the panelists will comment on that uh, question too. Well, to my mind, uh, the first and the most important thing is to uh, recognize, uh, acknowledge the problem, which is happening, and the bill you just quoted at the beginning shows us that it's, it's happening, and, and i really happy about that. The second thing is, uh, as I, I've already said, uh, is to do our own homework, because um, the thing 
I've learned during all these 25 or 6 years researching uh, this current regime is that they are not creating problems. They are just picking up the problems we have, our internal problems, and exploit them. So the main thing is to strengthen ourselves, to strengthen our democracy, to strengthen our institutions, and not to uh, make a blind eye on the problems we have internally. And that will strengthen us and will make uh, their job uh, much harder. I, it starts with it just enforcing your own laws. Um, you know, I'm gratified to see the New York Southern District take seriously the Magnitsky case and go after a Cypress-registered offshore company accused of laundering money, which then found its way into the Manhattan real estate market. I mean, this was a rather extensive, protracted, and dramatic uh, trial that, that took place, or not even a trial, an investigation, a prosecution. Um, and just as, as a, again, another case in point of how intimately concerned top officials in Moscow are with this stuff, the amount of money and effort that went into lobbying to get this case thrown out. Why? Because, it, as, and Russian state officials said it themselves, this would set a precedent for other jurisdictions to go after our businessmen and our sort of essentially state cutouts, people who were being seconded, whether they're oligarchs or, you know, real estate moguls or whatever, to do our dirty work abroad. Um, so, you know, enforce the laws that you have on the books is one thing. Um, I think, frankly, the, the problem is far greater and, and more menacing in Europe than it is in the United States, simply because, as, as far as I can tell, and, and based on my own experience, um, the European political classes continue to be ever fearful of doing something that will antagonize Russia. Things have begun to change recently because of the crisis of war, I should say, in Ukraine, under Angela Merkel in Germany. But the problem, nevertheless, remains. Um, Putin does see all of Europe, not just the so-called near abroad, but all of Europe as his backyard and his sort of plaything. Um, elites that can be bought, uh, former state leaders who can be put on the Gazprom payroll, for instance. Uh, and I have seen a, a, an almost preternatural re reluctance to take on this problem, which ultimately does, I mean, uh, to be clear, it always comes back home. It always, be, it always will change for the worse the domestic political situation in whatever country you're dealing with. I mean, that's why corruption uh, is so important, even if you don't care about what's happening internally in Russia, because it will always be exported outward. So I would say, you know, sanctions are a good way to start. And, and also, just uh, from a personal perspective, one of the reasons that I was happy to see the Obama administration issue sanctions on very well-known and storied malefactors in the Russian energy sector, security services, and so on, specifically over the annexation of Crimea. It's not because I thought that was necessarily going to change Russian foreign policy or even so adversely affect the Russian economy that Putin would be forced to kind of step down. It's because as a journalist investigating these things, it makes my job easier. Uh, it, it, it reduces the chance that by putting out a, a publication trying to shine a light on this stuff, 
that I'm not going to be sued for libel or I'm not going to be threatened to have all of my personal property and assets taken away because the people I'm going after are far wealthier than I and have more resources at their disposal. So this is where I've argued before that the civil society and Western democracies can work hand in hand, and indeed uh, media organizations in Western democracies can work hand in hand. Not that journalists should be taking their you know, dictation from the state, but when the state has proven, um, and particularly the Treasury Department, the State Department, which do not issue sanctions on the say-so of articles in Novaya Gazeta, but actually have to do their own homework, and there's a very high legal threshold for the passage of these sanctions, automatically that attracts journalistic interest in the subject, and it creates a kind of uh, sort of umbrella of protection for those of us who, who want to toil in this field, but have in the past felt, well, it's prohibitively expensive, because if, if, if we get even one thing wrong, or even if we get, I should say, everything right, they're going to come after us with, with everything that they've got, um, sort of legal terrorism in a sense. So, Yeah, and I'll, I'll add something to this. I mean, I do think Marius, you're absolutely right on this. The first step to fixing a problem is acknowledging that you have a problem. And we're just about, I think, to that point. But you know, this question of, of the dirty money flowing into the United States, flowing into London, whatever um, European, Western capital you can, you can think of, I mean, it is a question I think that we need to realize affects the, ordin the ordinary, everyday lives of ordinary people. Um, you know, we, we look at these, these jurisdictions like Cyprus or the Isle of Man and think, oh, you know, these tax havens are, are far off and far away. And we still don't really know as Americans that the state of Delaware, the state of Nevada, these are places that are very well-known tax shelters. It's extremely easy to register an anonymous company uh, in places like this. And it, that's one of the things that we can do is to actually look at ourselves and see where do we have holes in our own system? How can we actually start to clean up our own act and, and start to push forward on this? And you know, there, there, there's been steps that have been taken to ask lawyers and real estate agents in some uh, cities throughout the US a kind of pilot program that will say you've got to do serious due diligence on any purchaser of property that is uh, worth over five hundred thousand uh, dollars, over a million dollars, depending on the area, depending depending on what the the average property price is. But even doing simple things like that, codifying it in law, that if you're going, if someone's going to purchase a piece of property in New York City that's over, that costs over two, three million dollars, and you've actually got to do due diligence on that and look at where is this money coming from. That's the kind of thing that can start to help keep that dirty money out of our own systems. And I think, you know, also will help to keep uh, housing prices down for ordinary Americans. Uh, keep prices that are otherwise inflated by, by people trying to park and launder their money in US or Canadian or British property. It helps um, ordinary citizens as well and keeps our communities our own without um, allowing these kinds of insidious forces into the country. So that's, that's my one addition. Yeah. Well, I think one, one thing about Maris's paper is he's very explicit, and in his own remarks also insisted on the fact that the Russian regime is at war with us. And if we accept that as a framework, we're going to start to think very differently about all of these things. And we haven't accepted that yet as a society. For instance, 
we still think that, well, of course, everybody is entitled to legal representation in the United States. Everybody is entitled to hiring lobbyists and all sorts of things. If we're really at war, do we start to question such notions a little bit? I think we probably have to. And uh, the way uh, in which our financial sector is, uh, I, I use that term loosely, is so embroiled in uh, asset protection for kleptocratic enemies is something we really need to uh, look at. Uh, when there is a war, and we saw this during the Cold War, World War II, we obviously take measures we don't afford all foreigners the protections of U.S. law and access to our system that would occur under normal circumstances. So I think all of this uh, legislation brewing on the Hill, there are going to be some, uh, hopefully, some interesting practical measures that are going to come out of this, but we're going to have to do a lot of blocking and paring, and we're going to have to constrain ourselves, um, and it's not going to be free. I mean, if people think that uh, that defending freedom and democracy is going to be free and that we can just continue to pursue uh, money at all costs, we will continue to be um, undermined, of course. Um, now, on this, uh, on this subject, before we open it up to the audience, Jeff, did anybody else want to comment on, uh, on uh, U.S. Uh, policy pushback against the threat women? Well, Charles, I'll, I'll say something about what has been said by Marius in the introduction by you. I, I think, in a sense, I mean, first of all, you said we're all friends here. I'm on your side. But this is really a tall order. We're at war with Russia. It's really a tall order. I agree, and it's a tall order. Why? Uh, number one, uh, conceptually and the political reality of Western capitals and Washington, D.C., People say, and there's truth to it, Russia is not a rising power, okay? And Russia has myriad problems at home, and Vladimir Putin, uh, Charles Davidson, is not 10 feet tall, they say. Now, of course, part of the answer to that is he's not 10 feet tall. The trouble is he's like that undersized, scrappy point guard in basketball that knows how to pivot and penetrate defenses. And those formal defenses, he rips them to shreds. But, but that guy doesn't make the highlights because the guy who's 7'3", who dunks you know, easily, he makes the highlights. So, so the first thing is, in context, one has to find, we have to find, more effective ways to be persuasive that this is a kind of war because he has a vision, because he wants to undermine us and the West. And I think that's a tough sell, but I think it has to be sold. The related to that, um, I used to run a media company, RFERL. I've also produced, this sounds trite, but I'm going to tell you, uh, I've also produced uh, during my professional life two television documentaries. Um, for the, someone said society, for our public at large, you want to talk about a threat? ISIS is a threat. Beheadings, or a truck going through a Christmas market in Berlin, or a bombing in the Brussels airport, that's a threat. It's compelling. It makes, forgive me, it makes good pictures. Anyone want to respond to an advertisement that says, tonight at nine, the Russian threat against the European Union? You want to watch that? <laughs> North Korea, 
ISIS are simply, by popular and social and political imagination, they are real and they're serious and they have to be dealt with and they're lethal. But, but in popular imagination politics, they're more compelling. The last thing I would say, Charles, to that is once we, in this paper helps us, once we have our heads around the description of the problem, um, once we understand the magnitude of the problem, we're going to need a strategy that is also like the Russians, multifaceted, and is also like Vladimir Putin, sequence, because we're going to need medium and short and longer-term elements. Mario said rightfully so that he is strong because we're weak. I mean, we're at a moment where democratic capitalism here and across the West is not on the top of its game right now. We have to find ways in our own public information warfare, if you want to call it that, but also in our foreign policy, where we reestablish a vision of our own, objectives of our own, and ways to put him back on his heels. Right now, as Michael said in Europe, but in Washington too, we're not there. We're not there right now. Although, just a, a follow-up point, too, actually, I would agree with you um, six months ago that tonight at 9, the Russian threat against X was not compelling or attractive television. But as somebody who works for a, a news network that essentially every day puts out stories like that, right now, and thanks to Putin's decision to undertake this ambitious and, frankly, startlingly, startlingly successful operation against American democracy, all of a sudden, he is on par with ISIS in terms of news value. And the Russian threat, whether it's hacking voting booths here or interfering uh, you know, in uh, aspiring NATO countries in the Balkans or buying off European politicians, I mean, spy mania from the Cold War is back, and it's back with a bullet. I can just tell you as somebody who is assigned stories, you know, that, that, that there is a very big appetite for this. And secondly, this is what always used to bug me. Okay, fine. So Russia may not be, what you know, under its old conception, a great power in the making or a great power in the remaking, I should say, even though Putin, that is his ultimate vision. But so what? I mean, when since World War II has America been in a state of conflict or at war with an adversary who was essentially on par with the United States, economically, militarily, and so on. And yet we still find ourselves in these quagmires or these protracted conflicts, whether it's against state actors in the Middle East or non-state actors in the Middle East and everywhere. Why should Russia somehow be dismissed as a threat simply because, you know, whatever condescending cliche you prefer, upper Volga with nukes or upper Volga with uh, uh, hedge funds, as you might think. Um, it is a threat. Uh, and, and, and as this paper points out, and as I think we're, we're beginning to now just suddenly grasp and understand. I mean, you know, I turn on MSNBC, a network that used to dismiss the idea of, you know, hawkish John McCain-like cold warriors looking, cruising for a bruising with nuclear exchanges with Moscow. And now, I mean, uh, you know, Rachel Maddow is to my right on the Russian men as my work here is done. You know, I mean, I, I, so in a way, this is the opportune time to actually devise a coherent and compelling strategy. And it's a time when, maybe not in, in the strict Washingtonian sense, you're going to get a bipartisan consensus, but you're going to appeal to a constituency, particularly mm -hmm. among liberals and people who are really exercised about what's going on domestically, to really understand that this is indeed uh, a problem. And, and just as a word of caution, as somebody who's been doing this long before, you know, 
Russia became the, the sexy topic that it is today. Beware the overreach, or beware the hyperbole, or beware the conspiracy theories. You know, I'm seeing a lot of this stuff now, you know, Russians hiding under the bed, this kind of thing. You know, keep your wits about you. The, the, the greatest danger during the Cold War, of course, was people who overextended the argument or went a little too hysterical. And ultimately, they undermined the case of true Cold Warriors who wanted to call attention to a very clear and present danger, but do so in a way that, that made sense and was grounded in reality. Um, so I, I'm, I'm ever cautious to say, you know, facts matter, and they, never, they matter no more than when dealing with this subject matter as well. I just want to add, Michael, you said your work is done. You know, <laughs> well, I'm being a little glib there. Not yet. And I moved into Tucker Carlson interviewing editors from The Nation magazine, and you'll see your work is not yet complete. No, but th see, that, that to me is, is success. When Steve Cohen and Fox News are like this, my work is indeed done, because that's what I want. That's, that's the political alignment I want to see. Far left and arguably far right, together as one, defending Russia against a, what you might call the alternative center of American politics now. But keep doing it, please. Yeah. <laughs> when I said that there's no ideology, you're quite right. I mean, the anti-Americanism, the you know, all of the old sort of um, kind of the the, the the sentiments and the the political objectives, let's say, and the tool. But this is the thing, right? In the Soviet period, being a fellow traveler mean that in some ways you ascribed to and you supported the tenets of Marxism-Leninism, or you thought that the Soviet experiment was a way, a, a progressive sort of move to the future. That doesn't exist anymore. It's, it, Russia is, is in, in a sense, a negation of everything that people don't like. You know, in the West, if you don't like liberalism, if you don't like gay rights, if you don't like, uh, it's anti-everything. And that's how it can appeal to Syriza and uh, the Front National at the same time. You know, I mean, that, that to me makes it even more of a challenge today than it was in 1983. Yeah, it would be a long discussion. Uh, first thing I would say is, um, uh, there was a clear distinction between KGB and the Communist Party. Of yes. course, of course, uh, the Communist Party was in power, but KGB had its own ideology, which is quite similar to the nowadays ideology. Um, the other thing is. Um, uh, they are not only anti, uh, it's not only anti-ideology, uh, they are trying to build, well, it's an ideology in building, but they are trying to build a new ideology of true conservatism, uh, which is uh, against uh, immigrants, uh, against, uh, well, gay rights and, and all. It's, it's, it's a kind of true, uh, they call it true uh, conservatism, which uh, echoes uh, quite a number of people, at least in Europe, which are dissatisfied with uh, this liberal democracy. Mm. And it's, it's, I would say it's uh, ideology in building. You know, Mary, so I, I agree with you on this, but my question really is how much does the regime that is building that ideology actually believe in it? Yeah. To me, it seems very cynical and a kind of tool for that vision that Jeff was talking about for the destruction or the weakening of the transatlantic alliance, the EU, NATO, the U.S. To me, it seems much more like a kind of cynical 
tool to be used towards that aim rather than something that's actually believed in the way that Marxism-Leninism, at least early on, was a real belief. For instance, yes and no. <laughs> yes, yes and no. To, to put it as, as, as sort of pungently as I can, how comes it that Vladimir Putin can be defended both by Oliver Stone and David Duke at the same time? If he's building this sort of neo-reactionary ideology. I mean, you could argue, well, the people on the left are just idiots and they don't know what he's building. In some cases, that may be true, but I don't think it is. I think it's, I am opposed to X, Y, and Z, and therefore I must be supported. Yes, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, as I said, yes and no. It's, it's, uh, this regime is very opportunistic, so it takes every, every opportunity it can to uh, undermine the West. But uh, when I look um, a bit deeper into uh, the ideology most of the people from KGB background believe, uh, I see this kind of um, reactionary, uh, true conservative uh, ideology in building, and it, it uh, reflects uh, their own beliefs. Uh, I would say so. Uh, of course, the other thing is that regime itself is not monolithic, and, and, and uh, there are very many different approaches inside the regime. Uh, we call, well, very often we call liberals and, and these hardliners. Uh, it's much more than that, but, but even taking this concept, of liberals and hardliners, and we can find people with KGB background among the liberals. So it's, it's, it's yes, it's, it's a very complex problem, and, and, and uh, it would be a very long discussion to find out. Yeah. Does the answer to that matter in terms of how, what we need to do or not do to counter the Russian threat? Well, to my mind, the, the one of the most important things we need to do is to try to understand uh, the origin of this regime. And only when we understand, clearly understand the origin of this regime, we can uh, think about any strategy. Great. Well, let's invite our uh, audience into the discussion. Do we have microphones at the ready? I see microphones. Do we have questions? In the front row, sir. Yes, and to introduce themselves. Oh, yes, and as, as usual, please introduce yourself and, uh, and uh, your affiliation. Uh, thank you, Charles. My name is Matthew Murray, and I was a, an official with the Obama administration um, at the Department of Commerce uh, and responsible for, among other things, engaging in um, uh, trade and, and commercial uh, policy towards Russia and the region, and uh, worked on the, the timing and the scope of the sanctions towards Russia was Mia. In addition, just by way of context, I also started a, an anti-corruption NGO in Russia in the year 2000 um, at a time when Putin was coming to power, and uh, we worked uh, alongside Transparency International, alongside Alexei Navalny, alongside others to sort of promote Corruption, anti-corruption from within the country. This leads to my question, which is, um, and, and, the, and the top line of the question is, um, are we in danger of over-reliance on sanctions at this stage in our policy towards Russia? 
in in the sense that um, can we answer the question, are sanctions helping Putin um, in, in a way uh, that is convincing? Uh, are, are they hurting or helping Putin at this point? That's a question that I think we have to ask ourselves before we impose more sanctions. Because at one level, it's clear that sanctions do divide us as much as they unite us in, in terms of the US and EU relations. And at another level, it's also clear that sanctions divide the United States from one of its natural constituencies and potential uh, leverage points, which is Russian domestic political opinion and building a middle class in Russia. And Who would like so, to take? So this is a question I want to put out there because it's we 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 are you know to the point where. Um, to the question of do we have leadership, or is the United States equipped with a, with a new economic policy that supports democratic capitalism in this part of the world or not? And if not, then by over-relying on sanctions, are we hurting our case for democratic capitalism? Well, just on, on the point of, of sanctions, I mean, again, selfishly, I like them because the government helps me do my work better. Um, do I think they're having a, a major deleterious impact on, no. Uh, and, and what I've seen is, and, and Putin has been very adept at exploiting this, essentially they, 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 they've given a sort of certificate of correct thinking to those actors in Russia who are now seen as loyalists to the regime. Being sanctioned uh, has saved some people from being sacked or deferred their termination by a year simply because it made them look like part of the inner circle. Um, and also, you know, they cannot afford because they will. If they fall out with Putin, they're going to. They stand to lose much more than falling out with the EU or the United States at this point. Um, but I would say this, you know, in terms of trying to reach the Russian domestic political sphere, I think you go down a rabbit hole when you you try to do this. Um, and and the regime is very very adroit. And in fact, I would I would argue we don't have to do it. What we're seeing now is a generational opposition movement driven by the fact that if you were born when Putin first came to power, you're now 17 years old, you have access to the internet, you understand the kind of the nature of the regime, how it's kleptocratic, it's human rights abusing, it's interested in foreign adventurism, and it's sclerotic. And eventually I think that that's a problem that will take care of itself. Where the United States, and I think that, again, coming back to the core issue here about going after the money, follow the money, where the U.S. can stand to show solidarity with the people on the streets or young kids who believe in a better and more liberal future for Russia is by essentially going after illicit assets that are obtained either domestically or abroad and then particularly spent in the United States and spent in foreign jurisdictions. That is well within our right. Nobody can argue, I and mean, Putin will try, that this is a violation of Russia's sovereign you know, national uh, rights and privileges. Nonsense. You know, money laundering is a crime. We have something here called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And Navalny, I remember years ago, uh, before he ran for mayor and before he became even the leader of the political opposition, somebody once asked him at a forum in London, uh, as a Western businessman, I want to know, is it possible to do business in Russia without paying bribes or without being corrupt? And Navalny's response is yes, but it's very, 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 very expensive. So, to 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 cater to you know uh, your your demographic, let's say American commerce, that's the argument. 
You know, you, you are liable to commit a crime if you go to Russia and you play by their rules, as currently defined by the regime. And also, you're being deprived of this enormous marketplace um, because, frankly, they don't want you there. So changing the domestic landscape or allowing it to change naturally is beneficial to business as well. No, I mean, I think it's an, an interesting question. Are we in danger of over-reliance on sanctions? And maybe it's not um, an expected answer, but I would, set, I would say yes, actually. We are a little bit over-reliant on the idea of sanctions because I think they make us feel better about ourselves. We feel like we're doing something about this big problem and not act, actually undertaking any real steps to seriously clean up our own act, to put in place measures, to start enforcing the laws we already have on the books. And it makes us sort of feel as though we're, we're, we're doing something, we're active, we're starting to fix this problem, but we're not taking care of the root cause of the problem, and it's a sort of band-aid for a much larger wound, I think. Uh, Marius, do you have a take on uh, Yes, uh, just a follow-up on, on, on Anna's point. Um, first of all, I, I would say I believe uh, sanctions work, not uh, as well as it could be, but it works. Um, but uh, the point which to me is much more important um, is that it's not about Russia, it's about us. Uh, sanctions is about not compromising our own values. Because if we don't do anything, that would mean that we think that, um, well, I would say cooperation with uh, criminals is a normal thing, quite a, a new normal. And it's, it's really about us. It's, it, as you said, one part of it is that we try to satisfy ourselves. But the other part of it is that it's in this way we're not compromising our values. And that's very important, uh, just going back to uh, the thing I, I pointed out earlier, that it's about us, not about Russia. The one thing that naively occurs to me about the sanctions is if our sanctions were helping the Putin regime, presumably he, they'd want more of them. And <laughs> there doesn't seem to be uh, a, lot, a lot coming out of K Street uh, for um, imploring more sanctions. So, let's uh, other questions. Alright, we'll take this one in the front row and then we'll Get back to an eager man towards the back of the room. <laughs> okay, uh, Viktor Andrusiv, I'm from Ukraine, Ukrainian Institute for the Future. Uh, we have uh, published uh, research on uh, actually the damage to Russian economics and the stability range of Russian economics. And uh, actually, uh, the sanction does not hurt them very much. Uh, only two things really can uh, make damage is uh, prices on oil and the access to the Western capital. And the problem we see that in 2016, they actually increase the access to the Western capital and the prices also increase. But on the other indicators, they are even much better than US economy. Uh, they reduced the state debt very much because they paid out a lot of money. So. Uh, if we talk on uh, what can be 
done to stop Russia, and we know that only two things this are uh, influential. What can be done here to to like promote some oil embargo or close all access to Western capital to stop them or to scare them at least? Are we taking questions yep. back? Or? No, we'll take this one first. Anybody want to comment, comment on that? No? Sure. Well, first of all, if you put uh, this question uh, like this, first of all, we should uh, admit that we are at war. If we will admit that, maybe something, I should say something, will change. But uh, we are still at the process, and uh, I don't think that anybody here in DC and, and even in Europe uh, would think in such terms like well, blocking oil or... To me, it's unimaginable, and, and, and uh, that's the problem. We, 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 we still don't acknowledge the scope of the problem. Uh, when they try to uh, undermine American democracy, to uh, interfere into uh, American elections, uh, we still have this partisan approach that, well, you know, it might be just a conspiracy theory, uh, despite of the fact that uh, 17 U.S. agencies uh, just made it clear that all of them think that they interfered. Many, many people here take it, take this partisan approach and, and, and not looking into uh, the problem uh, as a whole. That's that, that's that's a problem. Yeah, on sanctions, I'll just add. I mean, you're you're in general quite right that what made the U.S. sanctions so effective was not the sanctions themselves, but it was the, it was the oil price plummeting sort of quite suddenly uh, in, in July of, of 2014, and the kind of combination of the lowered oil prices plus sanctions really did hurt uh, the Russian economy. But you know, I think there, Charles actually has quite an interesting point. You don't see uh, the Kremlin clamoring for more sanctions, but you do see them clamoring for them to get taken off. But I think it's more, you know, you do see that where it hurts them is in having problems when their wife wants to go shopping in Harrods in London, when they want to send their kid to a university in Europe. That's actually the kind of stuff that hurts more um, and, and should there ever be a, another tranche of sanctions put on Russia for what it's doing in, in Ukraine or for some other action, I think it'll be very interesting to see if we move in a direction of, say, an oil embargo or people have talked about trying to remove Russia from the SWIFT banking system as a sort of nuclear option. But another option is to put the names of family members mm. on sanctions lists, make mm -hmm. sure that their kids can't go and... and enjoy the advantages of Western education while their father robs the country blind and makes education more difficult for their peers. Yeah, they want the lifestyle here, but without the democracy and freedom. And actually, when we, this is, this is uh, uh, I can't, can't resist uh, layering onto Hannah's comment here, the following very short anecdote, because when we started the kleptocracy initiative a little over three years ago, Mikhail Saakashvili spoke at a Hudson fundraiser in New York City 
uh, and uh, with a, a very, very wealthy crowd there. And um, he made the point about the wife and mistress shopping here. And uh, as, as he did very seriously, this is a real leverage point. And uh, we, we just, we don't get that, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a reality. Actually, it's something we uh, need to in incorporate into our thinking, certainly. Um, we have another question towards the back there, the young man in the second, uh, second back row. Elias Aslavsky, Free Russia Foundation. Well, congratulations on this uh, timely and excellent report. Uh, one quick comment and the question related to that comment. So uh, the panelists mentioned uh, um, propaganda, uh, cyber fair, um, as new techniques and uh, what's new. I think if I had to single out uh, two biggest uh, uh, new factors in, in at the disposal of Putin compared to Soviet times, uh, it's really the amount of hard currency, petrodollars, that he got, which neither, I don't know, Stalin, Andropov, uh, Brezhnev uh, could even dream of. Uh, to my, uh, to my uh, rough estimate, it's about um, half trillion to trillion dollars that they actually stole from uh, Russian experts of um, natural m minerals. Uh, and um, secondly, it's uh, the ability to use businessmen and business and private sector uh, in the West and uh, uh, supposedly in Russia, where private sector doesn't really exist now. Uh, there is no distinction between public and private sector. But this ability to use uh, businesses uh, on unprecedented scale, that's, I think, the amount of cash and the pretense of businesses. That's, I think, the biggest new factor. And so my question relates to that. Um, in the West, when, when answering the question, what can we do about this, um, isn't the main problem that we have so many vested interests uh, to deal with those businessmen, to deal with that cash? Un unprecedented cash, and um, and uh, the the question really is that uh, un um, this is why the sanctions are so superficial. This is why our response is only uh, like uh, symbolic, because uh, any real response would incur costs, political costs, economic costs in the West to actually do something, and it would, uh, might actually uh, what Charles mentioned uh, to do containment. He, he mentioned containment. To do containment, you have to close things. You have to maybe even block some freedoms. I don't know, like um, reduce amount of um, cooperation, uh, prohibit some partnerships. You know, increase due diligence, increase audits. Uh, even I don't know. So it's a whole area of political, economic, and social costs that might. And uh, if that is the case, which I believe is the case, then um, maybe. The, the whole issue is that um, um, unless the, the, this whole uh, deteriorating situation uh, creates even uh, more uh, problems and costs, the West will, the Western elites will not wake up until, I don't know, it's like really, really bit bad situation. I don't know, on the verge of war or something. Uh, we have a saying in Russian, uh, the, the, the peasant will cross his cross himself only when the lightning strikes. <laughs> so maybe we are waiting for the lightning. And thank you. Do, do we have any reactions? Or? Yeah. Well, coming back to the, the, the point I made earlier about enforce your own laws, I don't know if you saw, I think it was Channel 4 in the UK 
did this tremendous thing where uh, a guy who used to work for the Russian government or pretended to, to work for, I think it was the health ministry, uh, went around to various estate agencies looking to buy, and he, he, he was on camera being filmed, uh, talking to the estate agent and saying, look, you know, I'm a, a Russian public employee, but, uh, you know, I, I wet my beak, I steal money, and I need to buy a nice apartment for my mistress. Here's my mistress. And it was some very voluptuous, buxom blonde on his shoulder. And the estate agent's like, yeah, no problem. We deal with your kind of clientele all the time. And these people should go to jail. They should lose their job at the very least. They should go to jail because they're, they are complicit in a crime. Uh, and again, you know, we have the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is a brilliant piece of legislation that says if you're an American citizen or an American company doing business abroad, you cannot pay bribes, even if it doesn't directly affect the American domestic market. Excellent. Other countries should pass similar legislation. But again, when you have these exposés and you know what's being done and who's doing it, and then you do nothing, either because you consider it uh, detrimental to bilateral relations or a threat to national security because you're afraid how Russia is going to retaliate. Well, journalists provided the Panama Papers. Putin retaliated. Does that mean that we shouldn't have reported on the Panama Papers? I'm sure I could find uh, a bunch of people in this city to say, absolutely, we should keep our mouths shut because we don't want to rock the boat. Well, bullshit, I say. You know, let the truth <laughs> will out. But enforce your laws. Just, just. It, it, it's not, we don't, you know, we're always looking for this kind of magic bullet. What, what kind of, you know, creative scenario can we come up with? We actually have it. It's just we don't, we don't implement it. But I should say it's not only about enforcing the laws. Uh, I should say it's, uh, it's about the public opinion and, and uh, uh, the reaction of the society. Uh, you've mentioned... Uh, German guy, Gary Schroeder, uh, who is on North, North Stream. But how many Americans we would find on the boards of uh, companies like Lukoil? Do you know that former Undersecretary of State is on the board of Lukoil and all the other companies? Yeah. So it's, it's and, and it's, again, it's new normal. And the main difference uh, between the Cold War and, and nowadays situation is that they, I mean, are in our, in our backyard. And it's not about the uh, business and businessmen because uh, this phenomenon of friendly f uh, firms was created by Lenin, not, not by even Stalin or other guys from KGB. It's, it's created by Lenin in 1920s. So they had all these businessmen in the West and, and uh, some kind of cooperation. But the attitude of the society, of the government, was absolutely different. Now, for us, it's normal to have uh, people with very <clears throat> high-profile biographies on the uh, boards of companies like Lukoil and to all the others. That's a problem. Um, one, uh, I guess, last question in the front row, please. My name is Taras Brezels, and I'm from Ukraine. I was originally born and grew up in uh, Crimea, and actually saw all events of annexation of Crimea because of, on the beginning of this operation by Russia's uh, little green, green man, I was there, and effectively I reflected all these events in my book, Annexation Island of Crimea. And uh, what I would like to say about kleptocracy of Putin's 
I think to some extent KGB officers in all time they used to have principles, some principles and some ethics at some point. But nowadays we can see that money replaced ideology in the minds of uh, KGB officers, people like Vladimir Putin, people like Kovalchuk or Arkady Rottenberg. But I think that kleptocracy and corruption is something we need to enhance in terms of uh, people just around Putin. Because, for instance, uh, the building of so-called Kerch Bridge, which Russia is nowadays doing, this is the, the most expensive project which actually you can imagine. I, I'm originally from, from Kerch, and from the uh, shortest distance between uh, Crimean Peninsula to Russian territory, it's only 4.5 kilometers. They have chosen the longest way, which is 19 kilometers. And the whole project now costs net the 10 billion US dollars. Meanwhile, initially, it was only about 2, $2 million. And I think I think by 2019, the price of this bridge would be even much more higher. And we can easily understand that majority of this money would influx to Arkady Rattenberg, who is building this bridge. The same to do with uh, Russia's defense budget, which nowadays is number three in the world after US and China, and uh, nearly topples uh, 70 billion US dollars. But from our sources, what we know, at least one third of this uh, money has been stolen by, um, like, Defense Minister uh, Sergei Sho Shoigu and other henchmen. And I think that the biggest problem, and my question, which I'm, I'm going to ask you, is that uh, what we see from countries like Baltic states, like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, uh, not even to mention Belarus or Kazakhstan, I think that uh, the influence of uh, uh, Russian dirty money, Russian corruption, and Russian hybrid warfare against the, these countries seems to be very much un underestimated by elites of these countries. Because, for instance, then I was in Estonia just a few months ago, uh, and asked them about the situation in the Estonian city of Tartu and Kohtla-Jarvia. It's two cities with more than 90% of Russian-speaking populations in, in both of them. And according to the polls, quite a lot of people in uh, just both cities, more than 25%, they understand themselves as a part of Russian world, and they say they would fight against their governments if little Russia, Russia's little green man would go there. And uh, I think that uh, from this point of view, even this year, we might see very significant changes in Belarus, where uh, local president Alexander Lukashenko is nearly surrounded by Russian intelligence officers. He organized a purge just last year in the Ministry of Defense, in Komitet Gosudarstvenny Bezopasnosti. So KGB still exists in Belarus, if you don't know by this day. But still, there are a lot of Russian agents. And from this point of view, toppling of Lukashenko will create a huge, enormous problems for Baltic states, for Lithuania even, because Belarus is, is bordering this country, and of course for our country, Ukraine. Because uh, nowadays, Russians keeping uh, just uh, regular forces, but they are planning to, to just to put uh, air force bases on, on the territory of this country. I'm and so called cut you off. Uh, this is actually very interesting. That's why I didn't cut you off earlier. So please, thank you. Thank you very thank much. You. Uh, do we have any very quick uh, concluding remarks because we're out of time? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I lived in Crimea uh, for two years in Jankoy, uh, and it's been very interesting to watch how that island, as it is now, has really gotten turned into a kind of mafia state and a, a real center for these kinds of activities that we're talking about now. But I, I think it's also very important to point out, I mean, for an American audience that doesn't necessarily um, see how all of this is developing, is to look at Ukraine. Many of the things that 
slowly get exported further and further west. They're tested out in Ukraine. They're tested out in Lithuania. They're tested out in Estonia. And you can see how uh, things will potentially progress simply by watching what's going on uh, in these countries. And, and we don't pay enough attention to how things are developing and, and the kind of schemes that are being set up, because that's what's coming to us next. And, and it's not just uh, something that's very far away. It does have long-reaching uh, repercussions. Great. Well, I'm afraid we have to end there. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Michael. Uh, thank you, Hannah. And uh, Marius, it's uh, been wonderful having you around this year. Congratulations on this powerful paper, and we'll very much be staying in touch going forward, of course. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.